Dino Sosi, good morning and welcome to the program. Sterling, great to hear your voice. You sound energetic for this early in the morning. Well, I'm doing my best. We, we do try to wake up a city with a little energy at this side, Dino. Good to have you with us. Can we start the conversation, please, by having you tell us what you think cancel culture means? What is it? Um, cancel culture is, a, in the online context, it's a phenomenon where a group of individuals who feel offended or oppressed, they use the power of the Internet to re- remove a person uh, from a, a position or lower their social standing because they found something that that person did offensive or oppressive. So because you, uh, it all evolves around the Internet, it is safe then to say, Dino, that this phenomenon has only been around for a very short while. Yeah, it, 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 as an Internet phenomenon, it has. But it has its roots pop culturally in, as far back as the 1980s. Um, Nile Rodgers, the legendary chic guitarist, did a song called Your Love is Cancelled in 1981. It was about a date he went on that went really poorly. Fast forward about a decade later, there's an iconic movie, New Jack City. They had a line in it that used cancellation and it kind of, uh, they used some swear words. We, we won't share them this morning, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over uh, those pop cultural references kind of folded into the, uh, into the mass consciousness. And as social media has kind of become bigger and stronger over the past decade or so, the idea of cancellation folded in with uh, really popular social justice movements like Arab Spring, Black Lives Matter, Occupy Wall Street, Me Too. And then I think really recently over the last year, year and a half, I know earlier in the show you talked about a little bit about the pandemic and, and, and COVID pop-up clinics. Um, yes. It's a lot of people, they're homebound. A lot of people are really frustrated. So you get raw people on edge. You combine that with the social media, it's short outbursts. You have algorithms that, that prioritize engagement. And then you have this explosion of cancel culture. Indeed. And where do you think it started? Because this sounds like, or certainly is most uh, readily available in large, on a large scale at, at, at the college level, on campuses. Is that, the, uh, is that where this all came from? There is some of that. I, th- I think a lot of it, when people think about it as a phenomenon about what's motivating people, it is sort of a feeling of feeling oppressed. And like there's a, 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 often a times a social justice component because it deals with hot button issues like race or, or sex, sexual issues. So yeah. I think a lot of it is it kind of folds back into some of the things that we talk about at the university level, some of the, some of the really important issues like, of the day. So, yeah, right. cer- certainly. No, but the, uh, now I'm I'm just trying because you're talking about some of the movements that have I don't know whether benefit is the right word, Dino, but some of the movements that have been prominent in terms of the origins of cancel culture. And you mentioned, for example, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, uh, uh, Occupy Wall Street, and so on. Uh, those groups in in establishing the networks that became those groups out of that network has evolved the whole cancel culture phenomenon, right? Yeah, there are, I think, really big uh, impetuses for them. Like, and, and again, it, it's really interesting, like, as a phenomenon. Uh, Black Lives Matter, which has been, you know, obviously with the George Floyd movement and some of the other really bad things that have happened uh, with our, our friends in the, in the black community, um, that's really been, uh, that phenomenon, Black Lives Matter, started as a hashtag purely online, and then over time it evolved into, an, like, an offline, uh, like, real-time movement, which has been, like, a, a phenomenal development. Hmm. I suppose that's the thing that that has um, surprised many. Dino is the speed at which this has grown, and 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 simply because of the speed, it represents acceptance. Whether or not the movement or, or even the the notion of what's it, what it's all about is acceptable to large numbers of people doesn't appear to matter because it is just so huge in and of itself. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the key components is the speed where you have uh, the, the, one of the powers of the Internet is it conflates and, 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 and shortens time and space. So you can have something that's happening like I, I'm sure you've heard of incidences where there's like a someone on a plane, and something bad happens to them. They, they post an Instagram tweet, uh, an Instagram message or a tweet or something. And all of a sudden, literally minutes later, um, the world finds out about it. So there's yes. The, the, the speed is is is, an, is amazing. A global phenomenon can happen. It's it's absolutely breathtaking how, how the scope it can evolve to. 
I suppose the other part about that's a bit surprising too is that you know of, of sort of how something like a fairly common complaint can snowball into some monstrosity that really uh, uh really uh, loses the original context of the complaint in such a hurry it develops so quickly and and i I guess what what's frightening to some dino is the speed at which that happens uh, in which individuals and circumstances can get caught up in that snowball with no chance for defense yeah, I think I think when you said before about the speed that that's such a big component, and and then also like the, the volume of, of of complaints that can that can be folded into a movement, and all of a sudden you have the one person, you know, uh, uh, hopefully if, if if there's a a mass movement against them, they've done something something uh, negative that, that that sort of requires that to happen, but then if they if they didn't do anything so bad. Just their ability to fight back is really, really difficult because, as again you said before, the speed and then the volume of, of, of responses that can happen, it can be just overwhelming for that person. Well, exactly. And, and you know, and, and I, I'm rolling this into a conversation that I had uh, uh, based on an article yesterday written by uh, Major General Danny Fortin, who was, up until a very few short weeks ago, the uh, general in charge of the Canadian vaccine rollout. You know who I'm talking about yeah. here. Uh, and uh, General Fortin was removed from his position as a senior member of the command structure of the Canadian Armed Forces, to say nothing of the vaccine uh, commandant, uh, because of an allegation based on something that happened over 30 years ago. Uh, he had no chance to defend himself. At the, the whole thing uh, escalated on social media. He lost his job, his position, his career, his status, and everything else based on uh, a, a, an over 30-year-old allegation that he had no chance to defend himself against. And it was the, the momentum of the, uh, uh, of the uh, feedback based on the allegation that uh, caused his political masters to remove him as quickly as they did. It was an easy way to deal with the situation. His point, however, was he just, he was, he was in the middle of the snowball, Dino. He was the guy whose, whose name came up and of course caused all of this uh, backlash and it was immediate and enormous and boom, he's gone like that. He's suing the government of Canada, by the way. Well, one of the things that you touched upon, which is, which is, which is again, a really important point to this, is that there can be allegations that, that may or may not be unfounded. We have right. in our legal systems, um, a, a due pro- we have due process. Things take time to develop. Uh, allegations take time to develop. Uh, getting evidence to find out whether those allegations are true, to adjudicate right. upon them, that takes time. That's a really slow, methodical, and really proper process, unfortunately, for a person like uh, Danny Fortin. Um, in, in the court of public opinion, if, if there is enough of a, a momentum, as you say, and, and it, it is negative, it's really, really difficult. I, I don't know the particulars of, of his defense about these allegations, but right. even if he has some valid, valid counterarguments, it's really difficult when, when the volume uh, of allegations and negative press against him is that high. It's really, really difficult to push back. Well, and that, of course, I suppose, is what's most uh, feared by many about this whole cancel culture phenomenon, Dino, is the, the, is the speed at which it moves, the lack of ability to defend oneself once it found in the crosshairs of the movement, uh, and, and the, the in, in incredible speed at which one literally does get eliminated or canceled. It's scary. Yeah, and, and then and then uh, there's this. Uh, I think a danger from that. Um, there, there are these examples that happen that if the speed is fast enough, um, the uh, the volume of complaints is fast enough, and enough people get eliminated, it becomes a, a toolkit for people that um, they, they may use these tools for unfortunate and negative ends that might not be justified. And 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 and, we, and obviously in, in our public sphere, we want to have people having robust. Um, honest conversations, that's incredibly important for a doc- democracy, but sure. you need to be able to have both sides being, being, um, being able to articulate themselves. And when it's completely one-sided, it becomes really problematic. 
A pleasure to have Dino Sosi with us to start our program off today. Mr. Sosi is an instructional assistant at the University of Toronto in technology and media. He's also the author of a piece available this weekend at theconversation.com entitled, Can We Cancel cancel culture and from that article let me just read one quick line during this era of cancellation opponents transgressions are demonized slamming someone as irredeemably wicked on twitter becomes common lives are irrevocably upended we no longer reconcile differences with respectful conversations the long-term outlook for public spaces as marketplaces of ideas becomes worrisome. That's from Can We Cancel? Cancel Culture. Do you know, Sosie, that's a great line, by the way, and I think you really captured in that uh, one sentence the sentiments of a lot of people sitting on the sidelines observing this phenomenon going, this is not healthy, it's not constructive, and yet you maintain in the article it has the potential to be both. Tell us how. Um, I, I think it can be negative in the sense that we talked about in the earlier segment. Um, there are people, uh, if, if you're wrongly accused of something, all right, and there's negative allegations, and you are the victim of a, a, a mass movement against you, obviously it's going to be really poor for that person. It might be an unjustified uh, result for them. They have no um, ability in the, in the court of public opinion to appeal right. to that person. They could be canceled they could have their professional lives ruined etc like for, for individuals that are the focus it's almost almost completely negative right. on the flip side if you're able to garner support uh for a popular movement say uh over the past year or so with the, with uh, the in the aftermath of of the of the, the unfortunate um incident with uh, with george with george floyd that tragedy, if you're able to get enough goodwill and support in support of a movement that has a wide, broad support, um, you can help foster that, that, that social movement to a, a positive end. It's really difficult. It's very tricky because it's such a mass movement and you have people with different agendas being fold, folded into one movement. It's really incredibly right. difficult, but it's possible. Uh, yeah, and I suppose that that's the problem. And I, I think it, there's a sort of an inherent suspicion that comes with something that happens this fast on such a massive scale in which such irrevocable damage can be done. Again, not everyone participates in cancel culture. And in fact, I, I would venture to say, Dino, the vast majority of us are, are on the sidelines observing this whole thing with uh, almost open-mouthed, uh, the fact that people get away with uh, the kinds of damage and harm that they can cause uh, as frequently as they do, uh, and there doesn't seem to be any way uh, for, for that. Once once you're in the crosshairs, you're pretty much done, and that is is um, uh, terrifying for, for many ordinary people, don't you think? I, I think if you're a regular person, seeing how many of these, these incidences have become global phenomenon, where now there are people like, um, um, uh, say, like Jeffrey Tubin, the CNN host. Uh, he he oh, was lawyer, in a right? scandal yeah, with, yeah. With, the, with the Zoom call. Uh, he had a long legal career, uh, a well-respected author, journalist. And then now I think the first thing that comes to mind is this, uh, this Zoom call. And, and I think Tina Brown, um, who, who worked at Vanity Fair with him, said it's like, it's like his whole life of, of, of work. That's like a footnote to this incident. And again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not excusing the incident at all, but it's just, mm, right. it, it, be, it, becomes, it becomes the dominating thought that a lot of people have, and it's unfortunate. Uh, it's, uh, another observation that comes up in the, in, in, uh, the context of cancel culture uh, seems to be, and again, going to the origins and the, the social media that drives so much of the energy behind it, uh, it, it seems that uh, it, it sort of springs from a much younger-based crowd uh, and, in, in a sense, a strongly uh, uh, already imbued with a kind of a victim culture. Uh, this seems to be something that's coming out, again, uh, off a lot of campus where the idea of this, the, this, the whole social uh, order is broken down into two groups, victims and oppressors. And if you're not an oppressor, well, then obviously you're a victim and sympathetic to anyone else who is. I know I'm oversimplifying it, but sometimes it seems that easy to, to sort of pick it apart. 
I, I think like like I, I'm I'm a little bit older than you know the, the current student these these days, and I, and I teach them. It's it's interesting where I, I was lucky enough, and I think like yourself, to grow up in an era where if we had differences with people, we would air them one on one, face to face. And I think you can get ninety five percent of of your problem solved that way. I sure. think when you have uh, younger people who their whole lives have had. Instagram, uh, Instagram, Twitter, the ability to articulate themselves globally, rapidly with their peers. And then there's these profound social movements that, that I think it's really, really hard to create a sign to organize your friends to go out. It's, way, it's much, much easier just to tweet something. And I, I think it's mm-hmm. one of those things that it, it can feel, it's, it's almost like having candy where it's, it's, it's really, it's nice to have a candy or two, but I think people are overgorging on these things. And it's, 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 I don't think it's good for the people who are participating past a certain point. And I don't think it's, obviously, it's not very good for the victims. I liked your use of language when you talked about the long-term outlook for public spaces as marketplaces of ideas becomes worrisome and no more uh, no more worrisome a place uh, in terms of public ideas and a bastion of free expression is, of course, the college or university campus in which, again, the environment seems to have rather dramatically changed, Dino, to where uh, young conservatives, for example, on university campuses are very quiet about their political persuasions uh, publicly because it's it's just not a popular um, stance to take. It's interesting um, for myself when I've, I've taught courses and it's been a, a sincere pleasure working with the young people because they're so uh, hardworking, thoughtful, kind, generous. Something I say at the very beginning of, of every class I have is that I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of free speech and then I, I bring in, I fold in the section 15 of the charter where it's, it, it provides a quality based on race, national or ethnic origin, color, mm-hmm. religion, sex, age, or mental or physical disability. And it's later been kind of um, um, expanded to include things like LGBTQI rights. Right. So what I say is I want everyone, conservative, liberal, any, 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 any part of the spectrum, make sure you say whatever you want to say. If you're going to mm-hmm. be talking about a hot-button issue, maybe just spend a moment to ensure that what you're saying is, is is palatable to people who might not like your views, so that we ah. have a, 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 a whole a wholesome like a, a full debate. So again, a, a little thought going into the forming and expressing of one's opinions in order to at least accommodate the fact that there are definitely going to be people in the room who will immediately disagree. Nonetheless, if you can learn to at least articulate those opinions in a non-threatening way. Uh, chances are you'll be heard. If we in educational settings, K-12 and especially at the college and university level, if we cannot foster an environment where conservatives and liberals and people of any political stripe and have strong feelings about any important social or political issue, if they don't feel comfortable in that setting, we've done a disservice to them, we've done a disservice to academics, we've done a disservice to Canada and the world. Well, and okay, so then that's and, and it's a laudable sentiment, Dino Sosi, a laudable sentiment indeed. But you know what you're up against. You know the avalanche of of uh, energy and and uh, potential harm that can can come out of all of this cancel culture mentality, which is easy and convenient and super fast. So how do you? Again, you're you're up against this, and yet you really know what you're up against because you deal with it every day in in a classroom setting. So, how do you get around it? I, I think I model um, for myself. I, um, I model respectful, um, thoughtful listening and respectful, thoughtful um, retorts to people's um, thoughts. And I think I spend a lot of time trying to clarify what people are saying. I I think if we spend more time listening and less time talking, I think we'll all be in a better place. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, the problem is even if we do listen, if we hear something we don't like, then we get to object quickly on social media and that uh, and, and we're right back to where we started with it with the whole phenomenon so it becomes a, a challenge to not only be heard and to be heard respectfully and to present your ideas in such a way that they can be heard by others even when they disagree with you. you you don't say here's stupid here's the right way you say here's my way look at this as an option those sorts. I mean, it's, it's simply a presentation of ideas, but nonetheless, you're up against this monolith that's, uh, that's pretty threatening. 
I, I find, I, I mean, I, I don't talk to my peers about this issue specifically, but I, I, I have this feeling that people now uh, that work in academics and then and even in politics, I would say, and even in the media, I think people are a little bit more careful over the past couple of years about how they articulate their ideas in, in a public setting. And, 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 I, and, and it's, it's the kind of thing, it's one of the, I think one of the biggest problems with social media, unfortunately, and again, it's, it's versus talking face-to-face. When you say something sarcastic face-to-face, you can see like the eyebrow arch, you can, sure. see the, you can have someone pat you on the back, kind of sort of saying, I was joking mm. about that. When you have a short outburst of a, of a Twitter tweet, um, the limited number of characters, uh, you're just making something so simple and reductionist that someone, it's really easy, if you're looking not to agree with that person, it's yeah. really easy to provide that kind of fodder for that person to disagree with you. Indeed. Well, it's, it's a fantastic uh, conversation, Dino. I'm grateful that you uh, took the time to, to be with us uh, on the weekend with us. Uh, it's uh, very interesting. We haven't resolved anything, but I think a reasonable, thoughtful discourse about even the nature of the beast is probably a healthy thing to do. I, I could not agree more. I think we need to spend a little bit more time talking face-to-face to resolve our differences before going online to resolve them. Indeed. Dino Sosi, thanks very much. A pleasure to meet you, and I look forward to an opportunity to have this conversation again, because this isn't going to go away. We both know that, don't we? We certainly do. Thanks so much. Thanks for this. It's CKNW Weekend Mornings, and it's always a delight to welcome this character to the program as we enjoy a few moments of taking the pulse of British Columbians and Canadians, courtesy of Mario Canseco, the president of Research Co., based right here in Vancouver. Mario, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. Great to be here with you. Well, it's good to have you with us. And this interesting, this poll that we're going to talk about, at least first up, is a very interesting one because you, you take and you ask Canadians right across the country, who do you think is uh, the best prime minister of the most recent batch we've had? Is this an annual survey? And do you ask the same question every year? We ask the same question every year. It's the second time that I've asked it since I've been at Research Go, uh, but I've asked it before. And it's always remarkable to see how the fluctuations can be very drastic when it comes to specific regions and age groups across Canada. Well, and now we need to, first of all, establish the fact that uh, based on the most recent round, uh, uh, Pierre Trudeau uh, is the top of the pops in terms of what Canadians consider to be or who Canadians consider to be the best of the last nine prime ministers. By what kind of margin, Mario? Well, it's definitely closer than many people would have expected. You know, we've seen a lot of discussions about Pierre Trudeau and everything that he meant to the country. When we ask Canadians about the last nine prime ministers, 20% say he was the best that we've had over the past 50 years. Uh, Stephen Harper, a close second at 16%, so definitely a close race when it comes to the top spot. And then you have Justin Trudeau sitting in third place at 13%. Everybody else is in single digits, which is quite surprising. You know, there's a lot of people who are um, very staunch defenders of what Jean Chrétien meant for the country when he won the election back in 1993. And also people um, who used to vote for the old Progressive Conservative Party who say that Brian Mulroney is one of the best prime ministers we've had, but both of them are in single digits. It's essentially a race between Trudeau, uh, who is definitely well-liked by most liberal voters, and Stephen Harper, who is still seen as the best prime minister for those who voted conservative. Interesting. Do you, uh, in the process of asking Canadians who they think the best prime minister of the most recent nine was, do you flip the question, Mario, and say, okay, now that you've said who you think is the best, who do you think was the worst of the batch? Do you ask that as well? (laughs) Oh, definitely. Uh, The results are quite uh, striking this year um, because it's essentially a tie, uh, statistically, when it comes to the last two prime ministers we've had. Justin Trudeau is at 22% as the worst recent prime minister. Stephen Harper is at 21% as the worst recent uh, head of government. So definitely what we see here, and this has been consistent for the past couple of years, we tend to have strong views on either people who are serving right now or the last one who we have. And we've consistently seen a higher rating when it comes to the worst prime minister for Justin Trudeau and Stephen Harper. Now, what's quite remarkable about the numbers on a regional basis is the level of animosity towards Justin Trudeau. 44% of Albertans say that he has been the worst recent prime minister. No other, mm-hmm. uh, no other head of government in the country comes remotely close to these numbers. So definitely a situation that is guided in a certain way by age, uh, but also 
more than anything by region. If you live in a place that didn't vote overwhelmingly for you, you are going to be seen as the worst prime minister. Indeed. Well, of course, uh, and Mr. Trudeau uh, Jr., uh, is the current prime minister, has gone out of his way, bent over backwards, in fact, over many years, uh, to demonize Alberta and uh, to particularly, I would think, from the point of view of an Albertan, to place its future in serious jeopardy. A- and as a result, during the last federal election, Alberta elected exactly zero members of the Liberal Party. And so to hear a response from Albertans about who's the worst prime minister uh, of all time and to have justin trudeau he who would do alberta in uh, it shouldn't be too surprising to people who ha- who know anything about alberta should it well what is interesting looking back at uh, one of the times i asked this question in 2012 um it used to be pierre trudeau at 30 or 40 percent when it came to albertans rating the world right. prime minister a lot of long mm-hmm. memories related to the national energy program and certain yes. decisions that were made Now Pierre is at 11%, so it's one of those things where there's more animosity because it's more recent uh, than what we used to see. I mean, in in a different universe, before Justin Trudeau became prime minister, most of that animosity from Alberta was reserved towards Pierre, but now it's definitely going to Justin by a 4-to-1 margin. Interesting. So we know how, how Albertans feel. We'll talk about British Columbians in a second. But uh, what about the, the, the two population centers, Ontario, where most Canadians live, and Quebec next door, uh, where a very different large number of Canadians live? What did they say? Well, we, we see the highest numbers for Pierre Trudeau when it comes to being the best prime minister in both Ontario and Quebec. Uh, the numbers certainly lower for Justin Trudeau and for Stephen Harper. Uh, when it comes to the worst prime ministers... Um, Quebec is very critical of Stephen Harper. 26% believe he has been the worst prime minister we've had. Brian Mulroney, mm. local boy, 10%. So definitely mo- not a situation that is fantastic when it comes to, to the way they feel about specific prime ministers of the past. Mm-hmm. And I think we see a similar situation in Ontario. Justin Trudeau, a little bit ahead of Stephen Harper when it comes to being the worst prime minister, um, which is quite complex because you do see a situation here where People who usually vote for the NDP or for the Conservatives in Ontario tend to be more dissatisfied, but we haven't seen that when it comes to the actual test, which is voting. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Ontario, for example, it seems to work historically the best for the people of Ontario when they have the Liberals in power in Ottawa and the Conservatives in power in Toronto, uh, and which is what they have now. What is, and I know you were talking specifically about the Prime Ministers and in, in terms of how Canadians evaluate them, but when you get to Ontario and they talk about you know the next election, which we all know is coming up fast, what do they say about that dynamic with a Conservative provincially and the Liberals federally being best for Ontario overall? Well, it's been very interesting to watch over the past few months, particularly because of what is happening uh, in, when it comes to Ontario politics. Uh, the Liberal Party used to dominate. We saw them form majority governments in the early stages of the century. And it really hasn't rebounded in the way that they expected after the electoral defeat of the last election. So we might be heading into an election that is more similar to the ones we had in the early 1990s, where the NDP becomes the dominant force and it's essentially trying to topple the government led by the progressive conservatives. So we might be in a situation that is similar to that, um, but it's something that has happened consistently over the past couple of decades. Progressive conservatives in power in Toronto and yep. liberals in power in Ottawa. Yep, and it, and it goes back to the, the uh, Pierre Trudeau, Bill Davis. There was a dynamic that really worked uh, for the country as well as for the province of Ontario. And poor old Stephen Harper can't win for losing. I mean, he's he's the most he's considered by some to be the best, and many others to be the worst. He's he's really going both ways at once, isn't he? Well, what is really interesting here is uh, the level of criticism towards Stephen Harper when it comes to being seen as the worst prime minister is highest with those over the age of 55. So 28% of Canadians say that he has been the worst prime minister of the past 50 years. Interesting. Uh, closely followed by Justin Trudeau. So, uh, you know, we were expecting maybe the numbers to be a little bit higher with younger people who don't tend to vote conservative. They're more mm-hmm. likely to be undecided on this question. Um, and it's really interesting because you need to wait a little bit more to try to figure out 
what happens with these numbers over time. I think there was an expectation, for instance, that Jan Kretien would be more appreciated as time went by, and we continue to see his numbers in the single digits. So as time goes by, the level of animosity from specific voters towards Stephen Harper really hasn't subsided. Mario's most recent poll has to do with popular prime ministers. And here in British Columbia, Mario, uh, as you as we know, as we've already discussed, uh, Pierre Trudeau tops the list as the best recent PM for Canadians in most parts of the country. Is that replicated here in B.C. as well? Yes, he is ahead by four points. 20% of British Columbians who say that Pierre Trudeau was the best prime minister of the past 50 years. Justin Trudeau in second place at 16%, and the only other figure in double digits is Stephen Harper at 12%. Not a lot of love for the two prime ministers who have actually represented ridings in British Columbia. Right. John Turner is at 4%. No, sorry, John Turner is at 3%, and Kim Campbell is at 2%. So our two local prime ministers uh, don't fare very well on this question. Well, and of course, that would that probably read, that would be a high registering on the radar for uh, relative to other Canadians uh, when they would come up with John Turner and and Kim Campbell. I think at least they were local and so have some flicker of recognition locally. Mario, I wanted to ask you about because we've been talking now about popular prime ministers and what Canadians think about who was the best at the job over the last fifty years or so. How about the other side of the house? How about opposition leaders, people that maybe never made it to prime ministers, but were thought by some to be that sort of material. Uh, For example, now, uh, did you hear that ad, by the way, in the last commercial cluster about uh, typical conservative? They're taking shots at Aaron O'Toole in the same way uh, the conservatives took shot at Justin Trudeau. He's just not ready. Well, that typical conservative. So the mudslinging is on. Uh, So let's talk about Rona Ambrose and Preston Manning and other people. Rona Ambrose is thought by many conservatives right across Canada right now to be the one. If she was in the job that Aaron O'Toole now occupies, it would be a very, very different political game. Do you agree? Well, there's definitely a a high level of support for Ron Ambrose when it comes to whether she should have been the leader of the party to actually lead them to an election. You know, she was there only for a short time. Mm -hmm. And when we ask Canadians about nine former leaders of the opposition, Uh, She's sort of in the middle of the pack. 24% of Canadians who say that she would have made a great prime minister, uh, a little bit higher than Andrew Scheer, who actually led the party in the last election at 23%, but shorter when it comes to the level of support uh, than what we see for former Reform Party leader Preston Manning. Um, This is always a fascinating question to ask Canadians, because you're always thinking about the situation that they faced. And this is one of the reasons for somebody like Robert Stanfield to be doing as well as he is. 31% of Canadians saying he may have been one of the best prime ministers we never had. Right. It was such a different way of doing politics. You know, he had three different uh, opportunities to face off against uh, Pierre Trudeau. And it's very rare for an opposition leader to get more than one in this day and age. So part of the reason for his popularity is that he was hanging in there for so long when right. now all you get is one kick at the can and then you're doing something else with your life. Interesting. You know, there are some on the left here in Canada that believe, and, and people even uh, more centrist than that, who who really had a lot of time for Jack Layton. I uh, had the pleasure of debating and, and uh, having Jack on the program uh, many times over the years. I doubt we ever agreed on anything, Mario, but I certainly enjoyed <laughs> speaking with him. He was a most, he was a thoroughly decent man with an excellent sense of humor and, and a way of, of handling uh, debates that was both entertaining and, boy, you had to, you had to have your facts straight. Uh, A lot of people looking back in hindsight at the legacy of Jack Layton, particularly with the NDP, uh, he was the guy, the very best the party ever had. Is that reflected in your surveys anywhere? It is. And what's really remarkable about the numbers for Jack Layton is we don't have uh, a significant number of Canadians who identified with the federal New Democratic Party. It's usually around, you know, 17 to 20 to 25 percent. But we have 50% of Canadians who say that Jack Layton would have made a good prime minister. So definitely high numbers. The 2011 election uh, was really fascinating for all political watchers because we saw how Jack Layton performed in the English debate. And we started mm-hmm. to see the numbers climbing to, from, for the NDP 
and the Liberal Party dropping under Michael Ignatieff. And Canadians haven't forgotten about this. When we ask about Michael Ignatieff, only 19% of Canadians believe that he would have made a good prime minister. Oddly enough, in that election, how many votes did the Liberal Party get under Michael Ignatieff? 19%. Hmm. Interesting. Huh? Uh, can we talk a little bit about um, uh, the uh, the election that we know is in the works? And we just talked about an ad. So the and, and the leaders, my goodness, Mario, they're flying around the country making speeches now that they can actually fly around and go somewhere in person. They're finally trying to catch up with themselves, especially the opposition players. Mr. Trudeau has had the advantage of being able to go on television whenever he wants and has taken full advantage of that for over a year and a half virtually unopposed and the others have had to go on television whenever they had a chance which hasn't been very often so uh mr singh mr o'toole uh, they're playing catch-up ball will they ever catch up it's very complicated and i think one of the reasons for this is if this election becomes a referendum on, on how covid19 was handled we see 61 percent of canadians who are satisfied with management of the pandemic And we also see uh, very high numbers when it comes to satisfaction with the vaccine rollout, particularly as it pertains to the federal government when it comes to actually having those vaccines ready for Canadians. Back in April, we only had 45 percent of Canadians who expected everybody to be vaccinated by the end of September, which is the promise that the government made. Now we're closer to 80 percent on that. So if it becomes something where you're voting based on COVID-19 management, it's going to be very difficult for the opposition to get traction. But where their things have happened, and this is where we have campaigns. Well, again, and we've only got a couple of seconds. Do you think if, if the Liberals get their choice, this is going to be simply a referendum on pandemic management? Do you think it's going to be that easy for them? Well, I think they'll definitely try to do it. And there's examples about it. You know, we just had elections last year in Saskatchewan and in British Columbia at very different moments of the pandemic when people were very satisfied with how things were going. And both of right. those governments ended up with larger majorities. So okay. that is the game plan for the, for, for the liberals right now. Pandemic all the time and they'll get their majority. We turn our attention to White Rock, south of Vancouver, and a situation that we've talked about actually a fair bit on this program uh, over the over the summer. We've had uh, the mayor, we've had the uh, president of the BIA, and we've had a city councilor on, all talking about what small towns across British Columbia have been talking about all summer long, how to stay alive, how to prop up their hospitality industry in any way they can. And here to talk about, well, what it's all come down down to uh, rejoining us again is White Rock City Councillor David Chesney. Councillor, good morning. Good to have you back hey. with us. Morning, Sterling. Good to be with you. So this is all about the uh, Marine Drive, White Rock's legendary beach strip, uh, which features all sorts of restaurants and interesting places to uh, eat and shop and so on. And like any many other tourist attractions in our province, Dave, has been almost completely shut down by pandemic lockdowns and so on. And so the merchants, uh, the city government and business people have been struggling to try and come up with something that would work. The plan Uh, that was adopted was to take the two-way traffic on Marine Drive and take one direction out of it, thereby allowing another extra lane for all sorts of hospitality things to happen. How is it working out or how did it work out? Well, the old adage of the best laid plans can go astray, I think. uh, You know, it just, as I mentioned before, I've I voted in opposition to this simply because the the report that we got back from staff, the police and the fire department said it was basically unworkable. Uh, If we had to get an emergency vehicle in there, it would be almost impossible. Thankfully, we we didn't need to do that. And uh, we gave it the trial period. It didn't seem to. It helped a few restaurants. Um, You got to remember, and people that are not familiar with White Rock, we have the largest concentration of restaurants in any part of the lower mainland, it's a, you know, in that two sections, East Beach and West Beach, it's chock a block. It's basically nothing but restaurants. So it's very Mm -hmm. difficult with that many restaurants to succeed, to be very, to be very honest. The ones that have been there for 30, 35 years have built up a good clientele, but the new business owners that come in, people come in and they'll see the empty stores and they go, Oh, Martha, we could just have a smoking business here. But mm-hmm. unfortunately you have to make hay while the weather's good, sort of May through to July to keep you coasting through the off season. So 
It was it was difficult because of the COVID, and as you identified it, this is right across Canada, right across the whole lower mainland, and sure. the majority of our council uh, acquiesced to the wishes of the BIA, and it just it was a it was a, a you know a trial period, and uh, simply uh, you know when we looked at the numbers, when we listened back to the community, uh, it seemed time to pull it out. So. It comes out on August 11th. We return to normal. Um, we'll continue to try to figure out. Over the years, we've run shuttle services down there uh, mm-hmm. at the request of business owners. The previous council uh, built a $12 million giant parkade because the thought was, you know, it was difficult for people to find a place to park. But to be quite right, honest, sure. on those gorgeous sunny days like today, you could have four parkades and you couldn't you couldn't have enough parking. So. It's feast or famine. Uh, we've lowered the parking rates. We've done everything, as I say, to try to encourage people to come to the, to the beach, not only just this summer, but every summer. Um, and, you know, we keep running up against the challenges, but we'll continue to fight through it. Um, you know, my concern was not just about the waterfront businesses, all the businesses in White Rock. Uh, right. Certainly when people think of White Rock, they think of the Marine Drive and the pier. They don't think much about the uptown and the Five Corners District. But as elected officials, I think our uh, responsibility is to all of the businesses in White Rock. Of course. I can remember when we talked uh, several weeks ago now, and because you were the only member, as I recall, at the council meeting that did vote against this plan, and you articulated your concern at that time about emergencies. And as you just said, thank goodness that never materialized, that on a crowded one-way street on the middle of a summer weekend, there was an emergency that would have required a, a considerable um, a, a, a lot of trouble to get uh, any problems sorted out. That never did materialize. But what about participation, Dave? I got to tell you, Carol and I drove along Marine Drive and that one way only. It was just before lunch on a weekday. So the energy and, and the crowd size would be very different than it would be, for example, on a Saturday afternoon. But I have to tell you, it was kind of spotty. Some restaurants had tables and chairs all set out other restaurants had none so wh- overall how is the participation level been from those businesses for whom this situation was created very low to be very honest i drove uh, again last night and uh, basically 10 restaurants uh, uh, took part in the program uh, on west beach alone there's 23 businesses that could have taken advantage of this uh, I think six took advantage of it. So the buy-in, there was a, there was, you know, and 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 you know, we can we can research this and find out. Hindsight's always twenty twenty. With sure. communication from the BIA, a lot of the businesses seem to be confused after they put it in. Now they felt that they should be able to stay open until September. They couldn't remember whether it was the BIA or city staff told them that this was going to run through till September, but. Clearly, when before this ever went in, we put uh, a motion for it at council, and it was passed by the majority that once Dr. Bonnie Henry increased the uh, interior inside dining, which sure. is the reason that we allowed the outside dining is because the inside dining had been cut. So once we got to that point on July 5th, it was supposed to come out at that point in time. And when we reviewed that, these barriers are very difficult to move. You need a very specialized truck to be able to do it. You need to shut the road down and we'll close the road for probably about 18 hours on the 11th right. to get those out of there. And uh, in that one 24-hour period, uh, the company that was going to take them out originally told us, well, August 5th, 7th, but by the time staff waited for the council meeting for direction, by the next morning, it was August 11th. So, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's been two months. Uh, we gave it a good shot. Certainly, there was a couple of the restaurants uh, that created beautiful patios, Uli's on West Beach and Zapoteca on East Beach. They did mm-hmm. a tremendous job. Uh, had everybody bought into that, um, aesthetically it would have looked better. It still wouldn't have worked. Uh, it's well documented the East Beach businesses, because of people coming from the east to the west, had to reroute all the way up around town. They couldn't drive in. And most of the East Beach restaurants are takeout. That's where the fish and chip joints are concentrated. Sure. So people, you know, the, yeah. the world-famous Moby Dick, their business, based, according to them, was off 60 to 70 percent. 
so it, it in that in that sense, it completely backfired for East Beach. Two very different dining areas. Indeed, uh, this is a logistical thing that I don't think a lot of people think about. Back to the barriers for a moment that you were talking about, because you just can't make a phone call and say we want the barriers out. How about tomorrow morning at nine o'clock? Uh, the companies, the contractors, and you're not the only community in uh, in Metro Vancouver to have installed barriers and other traffic uh, diversion. Uh, 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 devices so when it comes time to take these things out you can't just make a phone call you actually have to make a booking and wait till your turn don't you you're absolutely right Uh, and it's the it's the peak season for them with a lot of events going on summer events and people needing to uh, change traffic plans in the community absolutely right um you know it's a very specialized uh company and very specialized equipment that installs and removes those barriers. It's a sure, you know, it's a it's a big job. It just can't be done at the at the whim of a, a city council. That's for sure. Okay, so let's talk, Dave. We've only got a couple of seconds here left, and mm-hmm. uh, you just mentioned already it's going to be a beautiful day. Don't forget the sunscreen, friends. Wherever you're going, that's uh, this UV rating today is going to be high uh, at eight. So wherever your travels take you, including White Rock Beach. Take along plenty of sunscreen and use generously. Suppose, Dave, we're planning to go to White Rock Beach this afternoon. What should we expect? Well, you'll expect, uh, you know, the normal uh, glorious uh, white sandy uh, shores of Semiamo Bay. Uh, we'll try to be out at some point in time today. You can check the tide table in the White Rock Sun. There's my yeah, full moon. Great, great low tides, too. Exactly. So, uh, you know, it, it's uh, when you and I lived here, uh, Sterling, and worked in Vancouver, I often would say to people, I live in Vancouver, or I work in Vancouver, but I live in Northern California. To the hmm. people that haven't been to White Rock for a long time, take the time sometime this weekend or over the summer, come out and visit us and uh, see what we have to offer. It is an absolutely beautiful community by the sea. Friends often visit me, and some I'm surprised still, sometimes we'll have visitors that come out from Vancouver, and they're like, do you have them in the White Rock ever? And I'm like, how does that happen? <laughs> That's uh, right, I know. It's not California, you know, really. No, it, uh, you know, it, I think, you know, the one thing that, uh, you know, when people are, we, you have to be coming here to get here. If you're traveling down I-5, heading to Seattle, you're almost to the border, you go, ah, maybe we'll catch White Rock on the way home, and then you're coming mm-hmm. home, you've sat in the lineup for two or three hours, you get the old Ford back wound up on the highway, and you go, ah, we should just keep going. So, it, you know, the best part and the worst part about it is that you have to be coming here to get here. Uh, so, come on down. Uh, you know, the weather's fine. We have, uh, you know, one of the most uh, child-friendly uh, beaches in the community, uh, no the kidding. lower mainland. And uh, it's spectacularly beautiful. Canada's longest pier. And we do have a lot of great restaurants. You can literally dine from every culture in the world along our waterfront. So, uh, it's our city by the sea. Come and visit us. It's a pleasure to welcome Rob Williams back to the program. Rob is the sports editor at the Daily Hive, and Rob was going to join us today, as he promised to, in front of many witnesses last weekend, to talk about the big expansion draft, the big show, and a good show it was put on by the Seattle Kraken a couple of days ago. But, well, he's got a big scoop this morning that we've already heard about, but they have definitely, the Vancouver Canucks, have definitely preempted the Kraken in this morning conversation. Rob, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Yeah, lots of news in the uh, NHL concerning the uh, Vancouver Canucks. Well, let's talk about that. The, a blockbuster trade, your headline in the Daily Hive, Canucks make blockbuster multiplayer dre- trade with the Coyotes. So let's let's break it down. Yeah, there's, there's I mean, this is just... <sighs> You know the biggest trade, and I don't know how many years by the Canucks. Uh, lots of lots of different aspects to this. So the, the first and foremost, I think the thing that jumps out in this trade is the salary dump. Uh, the Canucks have uh, signed many regrettable contracts in in the last bunch of years, and yep. the the three worst ones, are, you know, arguably uh, Louis Erickson has for sure been been the worst. Six, $6 million a year against the salary cap. Uh, Jay Beagle and Antoine Roussel provided some value in, in terms of penalty killing over the years, but uh, and Roussel as an energy player. Uh, but, you know, $3 million a year for those players that are barely fourth-line players at the stage of right. their career. So all three get lumped into this trade. So they're all off the books for the Canucks. So that's massive. Uh, they, of course, traded 
a first round pick this year, which is ninth overall. So that's a that's a huge trade chip. Uh, they traded the second round pick next year and a seventh mm. round pick the year after that. So those are huge, huge, um, you know, draft assets going out the door to accompany those those uh, those three players who are who you know quite frankly have negative value. So that's that's what the Canucks gave up. What they got is also equally interesting. Oliver Ekman Larson, who's a player right. that they've been interested in since last season, were heavily rumored. Uh, to be uh, close to getting him last season, he comes to the Canucks, and the Coyotes are withholding about a, just under a million dollars of salary. So the Canucks are going to be paying him about seven point two million dollars per season. So that's a that's a hefty contract. I mean, he's got six years left on his contract, right? And he's aged, and he's thirty years old. So that, as we've seen with Louis Erickson, Louis Erickson was thirty when he signed his deal, and that looked pretty awful, pretty quick. So. Um, Hopefully, Oliver Ekman Larson ages more gracefully. Um, there is, and I think that's where there's a lot of disagreement with, um, you know, a lot of people in the analytics community see him as a player that's already in decline, and this is a really dangerous um, player to acquire. Uh, whereas uh, Jim Benning views him as a top pairing defenseman. So we'll see who's right. He's been, he's had an excellent career, but he he really. Uh, you know, how to step back last year yeah. um, in Arizona. And then the final piece is uh, Connor Garland, who's a uh, 25-year-old winger for, uh, that will be, uh, I think, be a fan favorite, a bit undersized, but he goes to all the dirty areas and gets in there and and, uh, and plays physical. And uh, he's a player that has looks, looks to have a bright future. He, he's going to be uh, likely... Likely going to be a second line player on the Canucks, likely alongside Bo Horvat. Um, so he's a player that uh, that I think everyone will be excited about as well. So, yeah, lots and lots of moving parts in this deal. No um, kidding. It's a deal that makes them much better next season. Um, undoubtedly, it's just what you know. What did they give up in the future um, that then might hurt them down the road? You mean in terms of those draft picks, including, of course, the first rounder that uh, that the uh, Coyotes took the uh, last night. Uh, do the math for us, Rob. We dumped twelve million dollars in salary with Erickson, uh, Beagle, and Roussel, so that allows for Ekman Larson. He's going to come in and cost us seven, so that's a, a net five million in salary cap that they have now to operate with. But they've got to pay some of their stars this year before they start the season. Is there enough room to get everything done? I, possibly, <laughs> I think that they are going to. If if they were to just kind of, um, I mean, it all depends. So they've got to re-sign Elias Pettersson. They've got to re-sign yeah. Quinn Hughes. They're going to make room for those two. Like they're <laughs> those two will get signed. Um, it's just at what number and then what other moves do they have to make? Um, they still need to do something on defense. Nate Schmidt is uh, heavily rumored. I think that's a player that we could see get traded. He makes uh, just under $6 million. Uh, Jake Vertanen, I think, is likely to get bought out. So right. he makes another $2.5 million um, against the cap. So those are two guys that I, I could see moving. Uh, I think they want to bring back Travis Hamanick, but at what dollar figure? He was on a, a very cheap deal last year. Um, he's probably going to want to get a little bit more money, a little bit more term uh, this time around. Um, so, and, and then Brandon Sutter is a guy, I think now that Jay Beagle's gone, the, the Cox are in need of a fourth line center. They're in need of a penalty killer. That may make some sense. Uh, it'll have to be quite a bit cheaper than his last contract, which was, uh, which was an onerous one. So, um, there, they do need to move a bit of salary to, um, uh, and I and I think that'll come in the Nate Schmidt deal. But right. if they move Schmidt, they need another defenseman. So they're still very thin on defense, even with Ekman Larson. He helps, but um, they're they're going to have to rebuild the defense. Their forward lines, I must say now though, their their top three lines look very good right now, especially with the silly Pod Colson. They could be in a situation where they have Pod Colson. Uh, Jason Dickinson is the new center they got right, yeah. uh, on, on the third line, and uh, and and like and uh, and Tanner Pearson could be bumped down to the third line. So that's massive. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.